You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of 2 Samuel. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to look at chapters 2 through 4 tonight. If you weren't here with us last week, we looked at chapter 1 and we saw David's heart of forgiveness and how David didn't hold bitterness against Saul and, and how his heart was broken over the death of Saul. And as we move into chapter 2, we're going to see this heart continue. And we're going to see David's humility and David's desire to simply wait on God and, and not to take over uh, the throne until it's God's time. And, and we have to remember that David has been waiting on the Lord for 10 years. He was anointed king, some scholars think, at the age of 13 possibly. It's been at least 10 years that David has been waiting for his rightful place on the throne to be given to him. And have you ever wanted something so badly that you could taste it? You know, when, when something is yours, maybe it's a raise, maybe it's a, a promotion, maybe it's a new car, something that you just know it's, it's, it's mine, I've worked hard for it, and, and, and in a sense, you, you kind of feel like you deserve it, and you, you can just taste it. And this would have been David. Think of waiting on something for 10 years. God has given this to you. It's rightfully yours. And it says in verse 1, It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. David continuing to demonstrate the fact that he's not getting out ahead of the Lord, that he doesn't want something that isn't from God. He's waiting on the Lord. The throne was rightfully his, and yet he waited on the Lord and didn't take matters into his own hands. And, and I think that has great application for us because God may open doors for you and God may say, this is something I want you to do, and God may say, this is yours, and yet... He, he wants you to wait on Him for the appropriate time and not to just make things happen or not to take things into your hands. David went up there and his two wives also, Ahanom the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. So they dwelt in the cities of Hebron, down there in the, in the area of Judah, this this city, Hebron, was, was actually one of the cities of refuge that were given out with the appropriation of the land in Joshua. It's near Bethlehem. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And so finally David is, is now taking the throne, and yet he's only taking a part of the kingdom, just the tribe of Judah. The other 11 tribes are going to be following Ishbosheth, the, the son of Saul. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show you kindness and truth. I also will repay you this kindness, because you have done this thing. And so David showing his heart for Saul, even so much that he wants to bless these men who buried Saul. And, and again, it just kind of 
blows me away that David would even care. I mean, I would think David would just be like, why would you bury Saul? Throw him in a ditch. The guy was a, a, a pain in my side. He, he, he was an absolute terror to me and to my family. Saul had been pursuing David and chasing David and threatening to kill him and attempting to kill him. And yet David, showing his heart, showing his love for Saul, even wanting to bless those who had buried Saul. Now therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And so Abner, if you remember from our study in 1 Samuel, he was a, a commander of Saul's army. And Ishbosheth is apparently a son, maybe of a concubine of Saul, maybe an illegitimate relationship, because we don't really know a lot about this guy. All of a sudden he appears on the scene. And back in 1 Samuel, Saul died with his three sons, Jonathan being the most prominent of those sons. But it doesn't mention anything about Ishbosheth, and all of a sudden this son of Saul appears out of nowhere, and he is, in a sense, the, the one that would assume the throne because he is the son of the king, but God had already circumvented that process and made David the king. And so now Abner is continuing to fight against the Lord, as he has been for many years, being behind Saul. And remember, Abner was one that was pushing Saul to pursue David and to kill David. And now, Abner probably thinking, hey, here's an opportunity for me to really be kind of a king by proxy. I'll put this weak son of Saul in, in place of his father. People will respect him because he's the son. But in reality, I'll be able to kind of be the, the Wizard of Oz behind the scenes pulling all the strings is what Abner is thinking. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. And Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years, and only the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. And so for two years, Ishbosheth continues to be a pseudo-king, fighting against the, the, the rulership of David, in reality fighting against the will of God for two long years. And really for seven and a half years, David only reigned over Judah. And so for ten years, David is waiting just to be the king of anything, even though he's been anointed by God. Now for seven and a half more years, he's just the king of Judah. And you talk about preparation. You talk about God calling you to do something, but then preparing you for that work. And that really is what life is all about. Because God has a calling on our life, and God always has something great for us to do. And God always has things for us to accomplish that are even beyond what you're doing now and, and even beyond what you could ever think or imagine God could accomplish through you. But what He's doing right now is He's preparing you. And if you lose sight of what God's doing in you right now because you're so focused on what you want to accomplish in the future, you'll never really accomplish all that God has because you'll miss the preparation time. And that preparation time is huge. It prepares you for what God has. And every 
man and woman who was mightily used by God in the, in the Bible was a person that was prepared by God. You look at Saul, who eventually became the Apostle Paul, and all that God prepared him with. And the same is true of David. 17 years God is preparing David to be the greatest king that Israel would ever have. Was he perfect? Absolutely not. And we're going to be looking at some major flaws in David's life as we get further into 2 Samuel. Now Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab the son of Zeriah and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, Let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Sounds good. Let them arise. In other words, Joab and Abner don't really want to fight that bad. They're getting older. They're like, hey, let's have the young guys do this. We'll, we'll kind of have a competition. So they arose and went over by number, 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side so that they fell down together. So this was a really pointless endeavor. Twelve guys on each side, they ran at each other, they grabbed each other by the head, and they killed each other, 24 guys dead. Not really sure what the point of that was, but apparently Joab and Abner thought it would be fruitful. Therefore, that place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a very fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab and Abishai, and Azahel. And Azahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. And you remember Azahel was, was one of David's mighty warriors. Of the 400 men, he was one of David's mightiest men. And, and apparently he's, he's quick, he's fast, he, he's fleet of foot. And Azahel pursues Abner, the, the commander of Saul's army. This mighty warrior of David's now is going after Abner. And in going after him, he didn't turn to the right or to the left. His focus was just on Abner. And Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Azahel? And he answered, I am. Apparently he, he recognized just the speed of this dude. And he, and he says, Look, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and lay hold of one of the young men. Take his armor for yourself. What he's saying to Azahel, what Abner is saying is, Look, we're both warriors. We're both commanders. We're, we're both men of, of renown. And it, it isn't right for, for us to kill one another. It isn't right for us to battle. It, it sort of brings dishonor for us to fight. Go after one of the young men. I'll even let you do it. Just let's, let's not go there. But Azahel would not turn aside from following him. His focus was completely upon Abner. So Abner said again to Azahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? I don't want to bring dishonor to your family. I don't want to bring a reproach. However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear so that the spear came out of his back and he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that as many as came to the place where Azahel fell down and died, they stood still. 
And so Abner gave him plenty of warning, and, and he kept trying to, to get him to change his mind and finally had no recourse. And he kills him in a very brutal fashion with the blunt end of his spear using such force that it completely impaled him. And Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner. And the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Amah, which is before Gia, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit or one band and took their stand on top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? And Joab said, As God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel any more, nor did they fight any more. Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all Bithron, and they came to Mahanaim. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing of David's servants, 19 men in Azahel. So 20 men had died of David's army. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men, 360 men who died. And so David's army had beaten Saul's army 18 to 1. Then they took up Azahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. I think this whole chapter here in chapter 3 is really a picture the, the battle between Saul and David is a real illustration, a real picture of the battle between the flesh and the spirit. And this battle has been going on for a long time between the house of Saul and the house of David. And, and God has defeated the house of Saul. He, he had taken Saul off the throne. And yet the Israelites continue to prop Saul up for years, for an entire decade saying, this is our king, we're going to follow him. We don't want to have anything to do with David. And now, even to the point where Saul is dead, so are his sons, and now they're going to prop up this illegitimate son that nobody's ever heard of, Ishbosheth, and he's going to be our king. We, we so want to follow Saul instead of David that we are willing to follow this weak leader. And it's a, it's a battle that wages inside of each one of us, you guys. It's a, it's a battle between the flesh and the spirit is what is being pictured here. The supremacy of self versus the supremacy of Jesus. Who are we going to serve? Who is going to be the king of our life? Because David really is a picture of a greater king who came in the line of David, Jesus. And like David, who will never assume the throne. You'll notice that David never takes the throne without people wanting him to be their king. He, he's taken Judah now because they invited him to be their king. They said, we want you to be on the throne. And he was invited, and so he assumed that. But he never took what wasn't asked of him, what, was, what wasn't given to him. And the same is true of Jesus. He'll never take more of you than you want to give him. And if you want to have your flesh 
Saul on the throne of your life, then Jesus will allow that. And he won't take more than you are wanting to give. And there's this battle that Paul talks about in Galatians 5 between your flesh and the spirit. And in Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about the fact that we need to be reckoning our old man, the flesh, to be dead. And we need to be living for our new man. Because as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, we are new creatures in Christ. We're a new creation in Christ. The old things have been done away with. Behold, all things are new. And so you have a choice because your spirit is still inhabited by this tent, this flesh. And until we die, we're going to be in this perishing earthly body that is opposed to God. And so you have a choice of who you're going to identify with on a daily basis. Just like the Israelites had to choose who's going to be on the throne. Is it going to be Saul? Ishbosheth? Is it going to be David? Is it going to be the one whom God has rightfully placed over us? And the same question really is asked of us. Who's going to be on the throne of your life? Who's going to be your supreme master? And see, that's where the gospel has to be appropriated every single day. Because God created us, you guys, to live in perfection. That's what God created this world to be. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. That's God's ideal. He created a world of order. He looked at it and said, it is good. But Adam and Eve, through their rebellion and their sin, brought chaos. And that chaos has been spiraling out of control ever since. And Jesus came, and Jesus on the cross poured out his perfect blood, divine blood. The wrath of God was poured out upon him. And that shed blood took chaos and made it order once again. And ultimately, God is now preparing to redeem everything, not just you and me, but everything, including the entire world. That's the gospel, but it hasn't been completely brought to fruition yet. Slowly but surely, God is redeeming and shaping the world back into order. And so every day when I wake up, when you wake up, we have a choice. Am I going to identify with chaos, with rebellion, with that which is opposed to God? Or am I going to identify with order, with redemption, with the gospel, with the perfect life, with the righteousness, with the holiness, with the peace that Jesus has offered to me. Who's going to be on the throne? Is it going to be Saul or is it going to be Jesus? Who's going to be on the throne of your life? This battle, a long war. We're all in this long war between the house of Saul, your flesh, and the house of David, Jesus. But David grew stronger and stronger. And the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And that's what God is wanting to do in us. He wants Jesus to grow stronger in you, to take more of you, to take more ground. But just like David would not take what was not given to him, so Jesus will not take, you guys, what we don't give him. We have to surrender. And there comes a point where we must completely surrender to Jesus. And I think many Christians are in a place where, unfortunately, the house of Saul, their flesh, is growing stronger and stronger. They're giving more ground to the devil. They're identifying more with chaos than they are with order. 
and it's a travesty. And sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahanom the Jezreelitess. His second, Chiliab, or who would later be known as Daniel, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talma, king of Geshur. And so David is doing some, some political maneuvering here by marrying kings of other lands' daughters so that they can have friendships with these surrounding nations so that they know what's going on. It's a political move that's been going on for the entirety of human history to give them political positioning with enemy nations, with surrounding nations. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shepatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ethrium, by David's wife, Egla. These were born to David in Hebron. So David is, in a lot of ways, a phenomenal guy, and in a lot of ways, a really stupid guy. Because God clearly said that marriage was to be for one man and one woman. The, the two shall become one, it says in Genesis chapter 2, right? The two shall become one. Not the 483 shall become one. The, the two shall become one. And, and this desire for David to multiply wives wouldn't end with him. Solomon took it to a whole new level. And, and our sins are passed on to our children, aren't they? Our stupidity is passed on to our kids. And David taught Solomon some really horrible lessons. But David's quite the player. He's got six kids from six different women. A regular Wilt Chamberlain. Remember Wilt Chamberlain said he had slept with a thousand women? Apparently David was trying to be the precursor to that. Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. So Abner is continuing to position himself against David. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aya. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? It, it was sort of known that when a king died, his harem would be given to the son that took the throne. And, and he could kind of do whatever he wanted with the harem. He, he could say, Oh, they're too old for me or... You know, he, he could have his way with him, whatever. Um, apparently, Abner took Saul's harem, and Ishbosheth, this kind of, you know, king by proxy who Abner's controlling like a puppet, is ticked because why have you had sex with my father's concubine? This is, this is my harem. What's, and so Ishbosheth is starting to have a power play with Abner. And then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? So Abner's pride is welling up like, Look, dude, you're in place because I put you in place. Don't get puffed up. Today I show, show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with fault concerning this woman. May God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord, Lord has sworn to him. And so now Abner, because of his pride and his anger, is on God's side. It's, that's a real good motivation to obey the Lord, right? Pride, anger, selfishness. Now I'm going to promote David. And so Ishbosheth, from a worldly perspective, really screwed up here. Because Abner's not a guy you want to mess with. 
So he transfers the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So this Ishbosheth is just a total wimp. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. And David said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Now, I don't know why David wants Michael back. She turned her back on him. She was a horrible wife to him. I would think that David would be saying, hey, look, I'll accept your offer if you don't bring Michael, if if you leave her there. But David, for whatever reason, wants her back. They never have been divorced. And you remember that that Saul really took her from David uh, unlawfully. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, give, my, give me my wife, Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. In fact, David actually kind of bought her with 200. Saul said whoever could get a hundred, and David went and got 200. Interesting way to start a marriage. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her, to Baharim, weeping behind her. So you picture the scene, you know, Michael's been stolen from David. She's now remarried to this new husband, Paltiel, and he's following behind as Abner rips her out of her house, bringing her to David, and now he's weeping. Abner said to him, go home, and he returned. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, in time past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. And so this really is the the key verse in this chapter. As I said, there comes a point where we must completely surrender to Jesus and allow him to have full reign in our life. And that's essentially what Abner is saying to the elders of Israel. He says, look, in time past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. And then something happened and you pursued Saul and you kept putting Saul on the throne. Now then do it. For years, you have known that David is the rightful king and you haven't applied that. You haven't made it happen. You haven't surrendered to the will of God. And now what Abner is saying, although from a really skewed standpoint and really fleshly motivation... The truth is still there as he says, now then do it. And that's what God would say to us, is that we need to put the greater than David, the son of David, Jesus, upon the throne of our life. We've been talking about it. We've been praying about it. We've been reading about it. We've been hearing about it. We've been singing about it. Now it's time to do it. Abner's words are pregnant with wisdom for us. It's time to do it because it's by the hand of my servant David, the greater than David, that God would save his people from our enemies, our greatest enemy being our flesh. Jesus has saved us from our flesh. And in order for us to have victory, in order for us to accomplish what God wants for us to enter into, we have to put Jesus in his rightful place. 
Now then do it. Are we going to do it? That's a question for us. And he won't take that place unless you give it to him, just like David wouldn't. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. And David shows again his forgiveness, his grace, his wisdom in reaching out to Abner, because he knew that Abner had the, the, the ear of a lot of people in Israel, that he was well respected, and that many people followed him, and David didn't let his pride get in the way of just accepting Abner, even though Abner had been a part of this entire threat against him for all of these years, and, and the reason why he hadn't been able to take the throne. I think many of us would have been like, hey, Abner, get out of here. I don't want to have anything to do with you. But David has a lot of patience, a lot of grace, a lot of wisdom. And at that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and had gone in peace. And when Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away and he is already gone? In other words, why didn't you kill him or why didn't you hold him here so that I could kill him? This is our enemy. And Joab is a real hothead. Joab is fired up and he, they just come back from a a big battle and he's ready. I mean, this is one of our arch enemies. We're going to take him out. I can't believe this, David. You let him go? Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. He came here to be a spy, David. How could you trust him? And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner who brought him back from the well of Syrah. But David did not know it. And so Joab goes behind David's back and he ambushes Abner. Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately, and there stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Azahel, his brother. And so Joab was bitter, and this is all about revenge. He doesn't care what David has to say. He doesn't care that David has forgiven Abner. He doesn't care that in in David's mind he wants to put all of this behind them and to move on. He doesn't care about any of that because all that he can see is revenge. You killed my brother even though it was his brother's fault, but he's going to take things into his own hands. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. And the Holy Spirit here, as he's writing this text through the author, he's wanting it to be very clear that David had nothing to do with this that he's cleared of any guilt. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper who leans on a staff or falls by the sword or lacks bread. 
So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Azahel at Gibeon in the battle. And so apparently Joab is too important to David to treat him the way that he treated the, the, the man that, that came and said that he had killed Saul and, and he had his men kill that young man. And David's going to do the, the same to Rechab and, and Bana later in chapter 4. But with Joab, he's too important to him, and so he just curses his house. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and gird yourselves with sackcloth and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. Then all the people wept over him again. This is the only funeral that's described in the Old Testament. It's interesting that it would be for Abner, an enemy of David, and yet David weeps over him because he recognized that this person was in his life by the providential hand of God. And David understood that, and David never tried to thwart the plan of God. And you guys, there are a lot of things in our life that we don't like a whole lot. There's a lot of people in our life that are an absolute pain, that, that cause us grief and heartache. And, and what do we want to do? We want to get rid of them. We want to rid ourselves of them. We think oh, my life would be so much better if I could be done with this circumstance, with this situation, if I could get rid of this person. And yet, if we're wise like David, we'll recognize that that's God's hand, His sovereign providential hand in our life. And until God removes that person from us, and until God changes our circumstances, we ought never to do anything other than endure what God has for us. In fact, David wept over the death of Abner because he recognized that Joab had taken things into his own hands. And David wanted no part of that. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it and it pleased them since whatever the king did pleased all the people. Notice all the people took note of it. All the people are watching David to see how he's handling himself. And David shows himself to be a phenomenal leader. Not trying to gather people to himself. Not trying to take things into his own hands. Not trying to circumvent the plan of God. And it pleased the people. And some of you guys are leaders. Some of you aspire to be leaders. And, and we ought to take note of this. That people were watching him. They took note of what David was doing. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zuriah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. And when Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart and all Israel was troubled. And so Ishbosheth is, is now realizing that the kingdom is slipping from his hands. Abner's dead. 
things are, are not looking good for him. His heart was troubled. This guy is a total pansy. He, he never had the backbone to be king. Now Saul's son's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Bana, and the name of the other, Rechab, the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, of the children of Benjamin. For Beeroth also was part of Benjamin. And because the Berethites fled to Gideon and have been sojourners there until this day. And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. And we're going to look at Mephibosheth later on. And he's going to become a a really neat picture of, of us and how... Jesus has accepted us and brought us to his table. But Mephibosheth was also one that could have rightfully taken Saul's place, but he became lame in his feet, so he became crippled, and he was also too young. He was only five years old. Then the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, Rechab, and Bana set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth who was lying on his bed at noon. And so here's Saul's son, remember, who's the the one that is in direct competition with David. He's taken 11 of the 12 tribes to himself, and he's standing in opposition to David's rule. But David has just been waiting. He's just been allowing God to take care of this. But here, these two men who were captains of Saul's troops, realizing that you know what? Things are not looking good for our side here. The, the kingdom is slipping away from us. You know what? I think it's smart for us to be on David's side. And so let's set ourselves up to be heroes in the eyes of David so that he'll accept us and he won't kill us. So they go to Ishbosheth's house, the man they're supposedly serving, and they came into the house as though to get wheat. And they stabbed Ishbosheth in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. And so they go in, they murder Ishbosheth, they run out. And when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. And they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day, of Saul and his descendants. And again, you think David would be like, right on. Finally, everything has set itself up for me to take over. Two years, Ishbosheth has been in David's way of taking his rightful place. But David answered Rechab and Bana's brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. We saw that in chapter 1. These guys obviously didn't hear about that or they didn't learn anything from that. David said, look, the Lord has redeemed my life from all adversity. I don't need you guys. I don't need you to protect me. I don't need you to give me what's already rightfully mine. God's going to do that in his time. You guys think I'm going to reward you for this? Obviously, you didn't learn. How much more 
when wicked men who have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed, therefore shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men, and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. Guys, in Romans chapter 12, it talks about how revenge is of the Lord. It talks about not repaying evil for evil. It talks about blessing your enemies, praying for those who have hurt you, doing good, not just ignoring them, not just pretending like they don't exist, but actually going as far as to bless people who are your enemies. And it says, by doing so, you'll pour hot coals upon their head, which sounds kind of horrible, but it's actually supposed to be something good. And what we see in chapter 4 is just that, that revenge is of the Lord. And you know what? We all have enemies. We all have people in our life that we'd rather they didn't even live. And yet it's God's place to bring revenge. It's God's place to avenge our enemies. Even Jesus... The only one free from sin. So really the only one, the only person who could ever be really upset about how he's treated because he's the only one that never sinned against anybody else. He did not lash out or strike back. He patiently endured the false accusations, the violent blows, the brutal execution, the hateful slander that was leveled against him by those that walked by. Why didn't Jesus fight back? He was innocent. Why, why not lash out? Why not get revenge? Why not use your power, Jesus, to blow these guys up? And it's because he was taking the punishment for our sin. And in that sense, there was guilt. It was our guilt. And Jesus didn't lash out. You guys, he set the model, the example for us. And David is really showing us a picture of Jesus here. One who you would think would be rejoicing over Ishbosheth's death, and yet he was absolutely grieved by it because it wasn't the Lord who was bringing revenge. You guys, the, David is really an amazing picture for us, twofold really, of Jesus, the, the one greater than David, who, who has personified love and grace and forgiveness, but also a great example for us of how we ought to treat our enemies, of how we ought to react when our enemies are dealt with wrongfully. When God brings revenge, when God does it, then it's a beautiful thing. But when you try to do it, or when somebody else does it for you, it's not good, because it's not of the Lord. And so some great, great truths for us here in these chapters. Let's stand and pray together. Father, thank you for David. Thank you, Lord, that that he was a, a man after your own heart, a, a man who's a, a great example to us. And, and yet, Lord, a, a man that was very conflicted, a, a man that, that made many mistakes. And Lord, but what we really see in David is a, a foreshadowing, a picture of your son, one greater than David, one who was so gracious and so loving, one who forgave his enemies, Lord, one, one who has forgiven us, Lord, we were your enemies, and yet, Jesus, you've reached out to us, and you've called us your friends. Jesus, like David, you don't rejoice in the death of your enemies. It breaks your heart. God, may it break our heart. When, when we see people who don't know you, when we see people who are opposed to you, Lord, when we see them 
struggling, when we see them hurting, God, even those that, that may have hurt us, have harmed us, God, may it break our heart because, Lord, we know that they're separated from you. Lord, I thank you for the truth that we see here with, with Saul and his kingdom and David and his kingdom and the picture of the supremacy of the flesh versus the supremacy of you, Jesus. And, and tonight, Jesus, we want you to be on the throne. We surrender our lives to you. We want to identify with you and with the new man rather than with the flesh. Lord, we just continue to pray for the rest of this week and all that's happening. God, may you be glorified. God, may your kingdom be expanded. Jesus, may you be famous in this city. And may we be a part of that. In your name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, you may do so at our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Once again, thank you for listening, and God bless.